visiting with us. We've been working through a series on the life and reign of King Solomon, and we come to 1 Kings chapter 4 this afternoon. As we read this chapter together, we do so being mindful of the fact that all Scripture is breathed out by God, that it's profitable for our instruction in the faith, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but this word, the word of Christ, endures. It stands firm forever. First Kings chapter 4, the Spirit of Christ says this, And King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Elihareb and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Benai, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. And Zabad, the son of Nathan, was priest and king's friend. Ahishar was in charge of the palace. And Adoniram, the son of Abdo, was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had twelve officers over all Israel, provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month in the year. These were their names. Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim, Ben-Decker in Makaz, Shalbim, Beth-Shemesh in Alon Beth-Hanan, Ben-Hesed in Arubah, to him belonged Soka and all the land of Hefer, Ben-Abinadab and all Naphath-Dor, he had Tapith, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife, Bon the son of Ahilud and Tenoch, Megiddo, and all Beth-Shean, that is beside Zarethan, below Jezreel, and from Beth-Shean to Abel-Mahola, as far as the other side of Jachmium. Ben-Geber and Ramoth-Gilead, he had the villages of Jair, the son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead, and he had the region of Argob, which is in Bashan, sixty great cities with walls and bronze bars. Ahinadab, the son of Edo and Mahanaim, Ahimaz in Naphtali, he had taken Basimath, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. Bana, the son of Hushai, and Asher, and Baaloth. Jehoshaphat, the son of Perua, and Issachar. Shimei, the son of Elah, and Benjamin. And Geber, the son of Uri, in the land of Gilead, the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. And there was one governor who was over the land. And Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had domain over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tiphash to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety. From Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of King Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon. And for all who came to the king's table, each one in his month, they let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds, they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Hermon, Kakal, and Darda the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. 
He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs are 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the seer that is in Lebanon, to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He also spoke of beasts, and of birds, and of reptiles, and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So far, the reading of God's own word may bless that to us as we meditate upon it this afternoon. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps some of us come to a passage like this and we aren't quite sure what to do with it. Perhaps you've read through First and Second Kings around your dinner tables, but when you got to First Kings chapter 4, you quickly glossed over much of what the Spirit of Christ has recorded for us here, especially in these first 19 verses. After all, we have in this passage in the first place is a list of names, followed by a list of numbers and supplies. And then we have a concluding note about the wisdom that God gave to Solomon, such that he was wiser than all other men. And yet in the midst of these lists of names and supplies and numbers, God is speaking to us with a gospel word. God is speaking to us with a gospel word about the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, of course, recognize that King Solomon is but a picture of that greater king who is to come, and that the kingdom of Solomon, as glorious as it is, and it is a glorious picture, is indeed nothing but a picture, but a foreshadowing of that greater kingdom that is to come in Christ, that kingdom in which we now live, that kingdom for which we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But here in 1 Kings chapter 4, the Spirit of the greater king, King Jesus, is telling us something profound about this glorious kingdom, that, that when wisdom reigns, the people of God are truly blessed. When, when wisdom reigns, the people of God live in safety and security, each man under his vine and under his fig tree. Here in 1 Kings 4, we see that everything and everyone is accounted for. It's, it's an orderly kingdom that has a truly wise administration at the helm. That's how our text begins. That's what we find in the first 19 verses of our passage. We see the the rule of wisdom. Here the Spirit of Christ highlights for us the the stark contrast between the well-ordered, well-structured kingdom of Christ versus the disorderly, chaotic structures of the kingdoms of this world. Those kingdoms which do not have the wisdom of God. those Those kingdoms which despise God and despise the Word of God. And we see that all around us, don't we? So much disorder, so much chaos, and sometimes enough to almost make our heads spin. But here we see the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is a well-ordered kingdom. It's a kingdom that's characterized by peace and security. And because it's a well-structured and well-ordered kingdom, we see in the second place that it's also a wealthy kingdom. It's a kingdom that is richly blessed by our Father in heaven. In verses 20 through 28, we see the riches of wisdom. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the seashore. They ate and drank and were happy. Nothing is lacking in this kingdom. But in the kingdom of God is found more than you could ever ask for or imagine. You you need not look anywhere else. And then we're going to notice in the third place this evening the reach of wisdom. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, the Spirit tells us. And breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore. And people from all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. 
Those are the three things we're going to consider together this evening. The rule of wisdom, the riches of wisdom, and finally the reach of wisdom. When the wisdom reigns, God's people are truly blessed. Now you'll notice that this passage comes to us in the context of 1 Kings chapter 3. But to back up slightly before that, you may recall from earlier on in the series that in 1 Kings chapter 1, God secured Solomon's ascension to the throne. He ensured that Adonijah could not steal the throne from Solomon's hands. And then in 1 Kings chapter 2, God established that kingdom, banishing all the enemies outside of the kingdom. And then we read in verse 3 of chapter 3 that Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, and how it happened at Gibeon. The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, Ask what I shall give you. And we all remember how Solomon responded, don't we? Solomon prayed for wisdom, that God would, would give him a wise and discerning heart. And he did so by by rooting that request in the faithfulness of God. He, he prayed to the Lord, Lord, you have shown great and steadfast love to dear servant David, my father. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. But Solomon also humbled himself, saying in verse 7, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, did not know how to go out or come in. And now your servant is in the midst of your people, your great people, whom you have chosen. And so in humility, Solomon asked the question that could only ultimately be answered in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, who is able, who is able to, to govern this great people of yours? Solomon confessed his need for wisdom. And as we all know, the Lord was pleased with his request, saying in verse 10 of chapter 3, Because you have asked this, you have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning heart, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. And I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And at that point, the nation of Israel began to see God's faithfulness to these promises. In the second part of chapter 3, Solomon's wisdom is first seen on display as he adjudicates that matter between the two prostitute mothers, each one claiming that living child to be their own. And in the wake of that event, his fame began to spread throughout the land, such that we read at the end of chapter 3, that when all Israel heard the judgment the king had rendered, they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in King Solomon to do justice. And this is where chapter 4 picks up the story. The people of Israel are, are standing in awe of the king because they, they can see with their eyes that God's wisdom is made manifest in the reign of King Solomon, not only to secure justice, but also to secure peace and security, to secure structure and order. And in this way, the king of Israel begins to bear a striking resemblance to the king of heaven. For our God also is indeed a God of order. When God created the world, he did so in wisdom. Everything and everyone had a place and a purpose 
everything and everyone worked properly and efficiently. All of life was, was well-ordered and well-structured. Solomon himself reflects on this when he says in Proverbs chapter 3, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth, and by understanding he established the heavens. And we see God's orderliness in creation, don't we? How, how he ordains the seasons, how he ordains the, the sun to rise and the rains to fall. We see God's orderliness in creation when we, when we consider how he, how he designed it, that a man should, should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and, and out of that union develop a, a covenant home where, where the mom and dad love each other and the children obey mom and dad and, and grow in wisdom and stature. And yet we see God's orderliness not only in his creation but also in his redemption and salvation. There, too, God shows himself to be a God of order. Consider those words of Romans chapter 8, which Reformed theologians often refer to as the ordo salutis, or the order of salvation. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. For although sin introduced chaos and disorder into the world ever since the garden god has been on a mission to reverse the folly of sin and to reestablish order and security for his people and that's what god is doing here that's what god is doing here in the life of israel and in the reign of king solomon god is restoring order god is is pointing them forward to to that greater work of christ by whose death and resurrection good order might finally be regained King Solomon writes, one pastor knew the promises that God had made to David, including the promise of a royal dynasty that would last from age to age. And he also knew the promise that God had made to him to give him incomparable wisdom. And so here was a kingdom that was destined to make its mark on the world. Solomon was building something to last. And more importantly, God was building something to last. He's laying the foundation for a kingdom that will never end. That's what the Spirit of Christ is saying to us here when he tells us that King Solomon was, was king over all Israel and then goes on to, to list off all his high officials, his high cabinet, if you will. God is, is laying the foundation for a kingdom that's never going to end. For the Spirit of Christ to have written this passage today rather than simply writing it in, in a list of names, might have said, use one of those organizational charts that that many businesses use today. For here's a kingdom where everything and everyone is accounted for. There's no wasted efforts or energy. Everything and everyone has a proper place. And it's all in order that the people of Israel might know the blessing of God and so be a blessing to the watching world around them, just as God had said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Moreover, in addition to the primary cabinet, Solomon also had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month in the year. And then the Spirit of Christ goes on to provide an exact listing of their names as well. These names, these faithful servants of the king, these faithful subjects in the kingdom of God who, who love God and who love the people of God. While I'm not going to read all their names a second time, it's still important that we not simply ignore them or overlook them. To be sure, despite the fact that these men were well-known in their own day, they certainly aren't household names anymore. 
And so it is easy for us to overlook people like this in the Bible, especially when they have such unfamiliar and unpronounceable names as they do here. But the lives of these men, writes one pastor, mattered. They mattered to them and they mattered to God, which reminds us that we matter too. This list, writes Dale Ralph Davis, is another evidence of God's concern for individuals, the forgotten as well as the famous. For in the kingdom of God, every person matters. Most of the people in the world have no idea who we are. And our names perhaps sound just as unfamiliar and strange to the world as names like Ben Decker and Abinadab sound to us. Yet despite the fact that our names are unknown to the world, and despite the fact that that most of our names will be forgotten by the world, each and every one of our names is known by God. And each and every one of our names will be remembered by God. For even as these names of Solomon's officials are inscribed, written down here in 1 Kings chapter 4, we know that our names also are inscribed. They are written down in that greater book, the book of life. We should not be discouraged, therefore, if our service to Christ seems insignificant or sometimes gets overlooked by others, writes Derek Thomas. For God knows the people who belong to him And he remembers the work that we do for his glory. Isn't that comforting for us to know, dear saints, that despite the fact that we often feel forgotten, overlooked, we have neither been forgotten nor overlooked by the King of Heaven, that that the King of Heaven sees us? He sees you, fathers and mothers, reading your Bibles around the dinner table with your children. He sees you moms changing diapers and folding laundry and keeping the house in good order while your husband is away. He sees you young men and women hard at work seeking to shine as bright stars in the world. The King of Heaven sees us. The King of Heaven has seen the profession of faith made by Sam, Tyson, and Rebecca. And he remembers tonight the words that he spoke to his disciples. If you confess my name before men, I will confess your names before my Father in heaven. Our names are written down in his book. He sees us. He sees all the things we do for his glory out of love for him. Things that that maybe nobody else even knows about. And he promises to reward them richly according to his grace, even as we confess in Lord's Day 24 of the Catechism. And on the day of our king's return, Article 37 of the Belgian Confession says that that you'll receive the fruits of your labors and of all the trouble you've suffered in this life. And in the presence of your oppressors, you'll be crowned with glory and honor. The Son of God will confess your names before the Father and every tear he will wipe away from your eyes. The King of Heaven will reward you abundantly. And God's well-ordered kingdom, the rule of wisdom, incorporates each and every one of us into his service. Each and every one of us has a place. Each one of us has a purpose. This is the rule of wisdom. Each one of us has a purpose. I was reminded of that line by JFK, how, how resolved he was to, to put a man on the moon such that 
it became the overarching vision that even the, the broom sweeper at NASA said, I'm putting a man on the moon. This is the kingdom vision that God gives to us. Each one of us has a place. Each one of us has a purpose in his kingdom. This is the rule of wisdom, the administration of wisdom in the kingdom of God. We want to see in the second place tonight also the riches of wisdom. We read in, verses, in verse 20 that Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. You see, as wisdom reigns through King Solomon, God is fulfilling his covenant promises, the promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis 22 when he said, I will surely bless you and, and multiply you and your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And, your offspring sh- and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You see, boys and girls, our God is a promise-keeping God. It's important that you remember that all the days of your life. Our God, the God of the Bible, is a promise-keeping God. No matter what may come your way, you can be sure that God will be faithful to his promises, and it is his faithfulness to his promises. That's his faithfulness that that lies in the background of 1 Kings chapter 4. This account comes to us in the context of that much grander story, the story of God's promise to to destroy the seed of the serpent. And so Ralph Davis gets it exactly right when he comments on this passage Joy and gladness grip the hearts and lives of God's people whenever they see how firm God's word is. This was the certainty. This is what the certainty of God's grace does in our lives. It assures and makes way for exceedingly great gladness that can be found nowhere else. Truly, writes Del Ralph Davis, this passage is ecstatic over the fidelity of the Lord. And so we read that the people of Israel ate and drank and were happy. This is why the author of Kings has, has given us all these seemingly minor details to, to show that, that true happiness is found in one place, in one place alone, and that's in, in the king whose kingdom is containing riches beyond measure. God's promises were were coming true before Israel's eyes. The the covenant promise that he swore to keep. Israel and Judah were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. And the kings from the foreign nations came to Israel and paid tribute to God's anointed king, a a picture, a, a foreshadowing of still greater things to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelle, roebucks, and fattened fowl. This was the bounty of the king's table, an endless supply, for he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tiphash to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, And he had peace on all sides around him. 
and Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of King Solomon. Peace and security, people of God. These things can only be found in the kingdom of Christ. And these things, peace and safety, peace and security are ours because we have a wise king who is seated on the throne. That's what the Spirit of Christ is saying to us here. The, the language of every man under his vine and under his fig tree is simply a, a poetic way of saying everyone was safe and sound. Everyone had a place in the kingdom of peace. Isn't this always a timely message for the people of God living in this world? Because that doesn't always appear to be the case, does it? As the peoples of the world wage war against the church of Christ and and conspire to gather against the Lord's anointed. And yet, as the modern hymn goes, we can be sure that though the nations rage, though kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king who is reigning over all. And so we need not fear, for this truth remains, our God is the Ancient of Days. None above him, none before him. All of time is in his hand. For his throne it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, we can trust in his name because our God is the Ancient of Days. Of course, here in this life, we don't always experience this peaceable kingdom as profoundly as we one day will. But a peaceable kingdom and peace on earth is one of God's promises. One of the promises that God has made in the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah has said that his name shall be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table each one in his month, they let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds, they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. We may, of course, recall and know from Deuteronomy 17, the kings of Israel were, were warned against increasing and counting great horses like this. Maybe, so maybe there is a foreshadowing here of Solomon's eventual decline. The prophet Micah, in fact, will later declare and describe Solomon's chariot cities as being the beginning of Israel's sins. And so perhaps this is a blemish in this otherwise magnificent portrait of the kingdom of God, reminding us ever so subtle that Israel yet needed to look for another. But the point of emphasis here in 1 Kings chapter 4 is found at the end of verse 27. Nothing was lacking. They let nothing be lacking. For such is the way things always are in God's kingdom. Peace and rest on every side. Plenty to eat and plenty to drink at the table of the king. And don't we get a foretaste of that every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Food enough and drink enough. And pointing us forward and we're going to sit beside Christ and enjoy the bounty of his table forever. The people ate and drank and were happy. Every man under his vine, under his fig tree, 
the riches of wisdom. I notice finally tonight the reach of wisdom. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Azurite and Haman and Kakal and Darda the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. The first thing the Spirit of Christ emphasizes for us here is the quality of the king's wisdom. As his rule and reign pointed forward to the rule and reign of King Jesus, Solomon's wisdom was, was unparalleled to anyone else's in all the world. And the source of this wonderful wisdom was, of course, God himself. There's no secret here. God gave it, and God's grace explains it. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure. And this is why we can have so many intellectuals in our own society today who remain so utterly foolish. This explains why it is that we live in a world where our intellectual elites can no longer even recognize that in God's well-ordered world, He made man male and female. Because they don't have the wisdom of God. Proverbs 1 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. But God gave Solomon wisdom according to the riches of his grace, that Israel might know the blessing of having a king with a wise and discerning heart seated on the throne, that, that Israel might know the blessing of having a, a wise king who has all the answers, the hardest questions of life, like, like why am I here and, and where am I going and what is the meaning of life? Only God's people have a king who can answer those questions in a remotely meaningful way. The second thing the Spirit emphasizes here is the reach of wisdom, both in terms of the subjects studied as well as in terms of wisdom's witness to the world. We read that he also spoke of 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the seer that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and fish. Out of love for his creator, Solomon set out to study the creation, all creatures, great and small, all things, bright and beautiful. All of life, from earth, the sky, the sea, come under Solomon's probing and observing eye. Boys and girls, here we see that wisdom is incurably and rightly curious. Wisdom asks questions. Wisdom seeks to learn and figure things out. And so, boys and girls, you learn new things at school. It's good to, to raise your hands and to ask questions. It's good to learn about all the various works of God's hands and to understand them well. As one pastor writes, since God has left the fingerprints of his wisdom everywhere, and since there is no place where God does not furnish us with raw materials for godly thinking, Christians should be seized with a rambunctious curiosity to ponder his works, both the majestic and the mundane, the task of wisdom is to joyfully describe and investigate all God's works. Solomon studies all these things because a godly king has an invested interest in God's creation and, 
and in studying that creation, explaining that creation, why things are the way they are. And he has an invested interest in doing so from a uniquely biblical perspective that's grounded in God's word and founded upon God's word. And this is why we so value Christian education, isn't it? So that our children might be taught all things from, from the perspective of Christ's claim over all life, every square inch, as Kuiper would say. And this congregation is why we also need to restore and recover our commitment to Christian higher education as well. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading from Abraham Kuyper's Wisdom and Wonder, where with a view to the future, he presses his readers when he writes, Scripture says that the wisdom of the world is folly with God, 1 Corinthians 3.19. And God's honor requires the human spirit to probe the entire complexity of what has been created in order to discover God's majesty and wisdom and to express those in human thoughts with human language. But since the unbelieving world can do nothing but obscure God's majesty and wisdom, Christian thinkers are called to put their shoulders to that grand task that they alone can perform if even it were to bear no benefit for their own lives. Kuiper goes on to write, if university life and the influence it produces on the populace remain exclusively in the hands of unbelievers then public opinion will ultimately be turned entirely in that direction, which will have a most injurious effect on Christian circles as well. We've certainly experienced that, haven't we? And so Kuiper writes, Christian thinkers must therefore establish a university-level movement and by means of that academic movement manifest a different mode of perceiving and thinking, reproducing it among people who pursue these university studies something we should perhaps think about before simply settling on one of the many secular universities around us. By the grace of God, Solomon studied God's world from God's perspective. And what was the result of it? Verse 34. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. King Solomon had something to offer. He had something to contribute to the world. And we do too. A uniquely Christian perspective on this world. The wisdom of God made manifest at the cross to save sinners from the folly of unbelief. It's quite a picture, a foreshadowing of greater things to come. And And of those words, we love to sing, Christ shall have dominion over land and sea. Earth's remotest regions shall his empire be. That's what's happening here in the reign of King Solomon. They that wilds inhabit shall their worship bring. Kings shall render tribute. Nations serve our king. Truly, there is no other king like him in all the world who rules with such wisdom, who shares the riches of that wisdom with his people, and whose reach of wisdom extends to the end of the earth. This is our king. In this kingdom of peace, prosperity, and safety is our kingdom. And he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And so we pray, even so, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray together. 
Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you once again this evening and give you thanks for a truly wise king in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we give you thanks for his kingdom, which you have given to us, although we are but a little flock here in this world. Father, we thank you that you've given to us a king who has the answers to the hardest questions of life and that you equip us to share the wisdom of the king with the world. Father, we thank you that you've given to us a well-ordered and well-structured kingdom, a kingdom in which each and every one of us has a place, a kingdom in in which each and every one of us has a purpose, a kingdom in which our names are known by the king of heaven, in which our names are written down in the greatest book ever written, the book of life. Father, we thank you for the riches of wisdom, that though we live in a world of disordering chaos, we can have peace. We can have security. We can eat and drink and be happy because Christ is king. And we thank you also for the reach of his wisdom, O Father, that in the course of time, the wisdom of the gospel spread throughout the world, that it went to every continent and to Holland and then over the seas to Canada and to us here this afternoon. And that he has revealed himself to us as the greatest king who ever was, a most gracious king who dies for sinners. Father, we pray that we would see this king soon, that he would come tonight, that he would come even here and now, that he would lift us into the air to see him as he is, that we would enter into the most glorious, blessed kingdom that shall never fade away, that kingdom in all its fullness, where sin, Satan, and sorrow are no more, where the foolishness of sin is forgotten in a thing of the past. But if the king tarries, grant us faithfulness, O God, Grant us faithfulness to live faithfully, to train up our children and our young people in the way they should go, to bring forth and to declare Christ's word to the world and the word of his wisdom. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. For a song of response, let's stand to sing 421, Christ shall have dominion. We'll sing all the stanzas of 421. 421. 